It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And as you may know, that's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And if you download the iHeartRadio app, you can then take us with you anywhere you go. You can also listen online, and uh, you might be listening on our SoundCloud. You might be listening on one of your favorite podcast platforms, or you might be listening on one of the other radio stations now carrying Moment of Truth. And we welcome you all. I'm also pleased to welcome to the show... Dr. Shauna McKinnon, she's here to talk about an an article she co-authored in the conversation entitled Federal Budget 2021, More is Needed to Break the Poverty Cycle. So it's a pleasure to have Dr. McKinnon here. Dr. McKinnon is an Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies. She has conducted research on social and economic issues for over 20 years with a focus on public policy, poverty and inequity. And she is most interested in research that focuses on on issues identified by individuals living and poverty and these and those working closely with them. So Dr. McKinnon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Pleasure. And now you co-authored this article in the uh, in the conversation that I mentioned uh, with uh, Ian Hudson. Mhm. And he's also with the the uh, University of Manitoba. Yeah, Ian is at the University of Manitoba and I'm at the University of Winnipeg and we work uh, together through the Manitoba Research Alliance, mm. which is a uh, uh, university community research alliance uh, in, in Manitoba. Right. And um, your article, as you pointed out, the budget 2021 needs more to break, break the poverty cycle. You know, as I was reading this, a question came to mind because And it came from the first statement in your article, nobody chooses to be poor. And I thought about that and I thought, yeah, that's, that is of course very true. Nobody does choose to be poor. And I thought, what do we know about, about where poverty came from? If that makes sense, you know, why is there poverty? What is poverty a product of? Does that make sense to you at all? Well, sure. And it's a great question, David. I think, you know, there, and it's complicated. People don't often think about the complexity of poverty and it looks different for different people, different situations. And so there might be people who are, you know, temporarily uh, financially insecure, you know, in between jobs and living below the poverty line. Um, but there are those people and uh, that are have fallen into poverty and and uh, have a d- very difficult time getting out. Sometimes are living in poverty for generations, and they have a whole uh, whole host of barriers that keeps them uh, living in poverty. So, um, you know, the causes are are actually fairly complex. Um, but it is also the case that, you know, we live in a society that uh, uh, is not particularly, uh, f- you know, focused on alleviating poverty. You know, we're, we tend to be more interested in maybe, you know, providing charity and, and right. uh, you know, supporting people, but not really, really interested in doing what is necessary to alleviate poverty. Now, the other thing I found fascinating, not too much into your article was about how environment can shape these things, especially you, you mentioned prenatal environment, which I thought was interesting. Sure. I mean, there's all sorts of research that demonstrates um, that, um, again, I'm not an expert on health, but uh, it demonstrates that the causes of 
or people uh, are off to a, a they, they're they fall behind before they even get started, mm. so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, children, depending on their mother's health, which access to, you know, health and nutrition. These are all things that can cause problems for um, children after they're born and put and, and puts them behind others at, at, an, at the, you know, just as soon as they get out. Yeah. You know, yeah. Out, at the, out, the, out the gate, so to speak. Yeah. And now you mentioned off the top also uh, that uh, you and Ian are part of this Manitoba Research Alliance. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the Manitoba Research Alliance has been around for close to 20 years now. Um, we've um, recently been awarded a seven-year partnership grant through the Social Sciences Humanities Research Council. Um, and we've had several of those grants now. And w- we're a unique uh initiative uh, in that we are community-led. We are not um, housed in a, at a university. We have university researchers from both the University of Winnipeg and the University of Manitoba, uh, as well as University of College of the North uh, associated with our project. But we're led uh, through a community organization, the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And we're, we're there, we do that intentionally because it, it, le- it brings us closer to the ground to work in collaboration with our community partners. Um, most of our focus has been in the inner city of Winnipeg, but we have done a fair bit of research in northern communities as well. Um, but yeah, we, we, we are very much a community-led initiative and we take our direction and develop our research ideas uh, through our community partners Mm. As opposed to, you know, us coming up with ideas as academics. Right. And of course, the other thing you mentioned is the generational issue of this, is that if you're born into it, it's much more difficult to Mm -hmm. get out of it. Yeah, I mean, there's research that demonstrates that the longer you're in poverty, the more difficult it is to get out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, that is particularly the case for people who've, uh, know nothing but poverty. They won't be born into poverty. Perhaps they don't know anybody who is not in poverty. They maybe don't know anybody who's uh, been, you know, attached to the labor market or, or worked, you know, for wages. Um, and then exacerbated uh, by, uh, you know, situations in terms of you know, education and access to education and also trust in education. So mm. in Winnipeg, where we live, we have a, and I actually work in the inner city of Winnipeg. My department is located in the inner city uh, of Winnipeg. A large number of the folks in our neighborhood are indigenous folks who don't particularly trust education for all the reasons that we know in terms of residential schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have people suffering, you know, the trauma from the 60s scoop. And that puts people further behind and makes it more difficult for them to get out of poverty. So, again, it's complicated and and we need uh, many different policy initiatives to address uh, these issues. Right. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because you have some great uh, comments from some people in the article about those exact things. And I found it it quite interesting uh, what they had to say, but we'll get into that a little bit further on. What do we define as as poverty or poor? Well, that is also an excellent question because there are different, you know, different um, ways to uh, measure poverty. Um, So, I mean, now, you know, the you know, the federal government uses the market best 
basket basket measure as the official poverty line. So that's one way. Um, but I tend to look at poverty beyond income mm-hmm. because it isn't just about income. It isn't just about how much money people have in their pocket. Um, and, you know, it's really about the exclusion from a whole bunch of things that those of us who are not poor uh, take for granted. So, um, you know, I like to obviously, you know, um, income is central. People need to have enough money to live on. But it really is is more broad than that, in my view. Mm. The name of your article, the title, uh, you know, need, that, that the budget needs to do more to break break the mm-hmm. poverty cycle. The, the budget does identify some things, and you yes. mentioned that in there. But you say it doesn't go far enough. Is it fair for any one budget to to be able to handle or or be able to tackle something entirely on its own? No. Absolutely not. But it's cumulative. Right. And so uh, and it's incremental. And so our budgets need to build, um, you know, continue to build. If there is a focus on, you know, poverty reduction or, you know, poverty alleviation, ideally, then we need to continue to work toward that. And the budgets, not only the federal budget, the provincial budgets, municipal budgets, uh, they all need to, you know, work toward that goal. And, you know, I, I don't you know, that think it's, they, they do. And it's also challenging because often, um, you know, you need to have some sort of cohesive plan or everybody needs to be moving in the same direction. And that's near impossible to accomplish when you have a, a federal government that's, you know, working with um, uh, uh, provincial governments at all very various political stripes. Now, the, some of the other things that you point out in your article about about being poor and about trying to break that cycle, uh, the conditions that people live in, uh, the lack of of proper uh, money to sustain themselves, which, of course, breeds then potential health issues, but housing, and housing is Mm -hmm. another big one. Do you want to touch on some of those things? Yeah, housing, for me, housing is the... The number one concern, um, just from my experience, uh, uh, you know, talking with people who are living in poverty, um, working with people who are living in poverty. I have students uh, who live in poverty. If you do not have that fundamental um, need met, a roof over your head, feeling safe, secure, uh, not having to worry about paying rent, not having to worry about being evicted, not having to worry about, um, you know, infestation of, of bed bugs or other mm. uh, issues. If you don't have that basic need met, then it's near impossible to climb your way out of poverty. So, I, I, and I, you know, there has been a bit done in the past few years uh, with the, around housing, but it's just nowhere near enough. There are just far too many people. Obviously, you know, the most, the most obvious are people living um, who are homeless, but it's, it's not just that. It's people who are struggling every day just to survive in, in really poor living conditions. And that's, to me, you know, one of the biggest issues that we should be focusing on. Now, it sounds like from what you're saying there that we're talking about, because you're saying without a roof over your head, it sounds like we're talking about homeless, but there's, I guess, different levels of poverty, isn't there? Yeah. There could still be people that are poor that have a roof over their head, uh, and then there's the homeless. Are we talking about the same people, or are we talking about different people when we say poor and and homeless? 
Well, homeless, again, it depends on, and it's not just homeless, it's right. housing insecurity. Yes, okay. So, yeah, I would I would describe it more as housing insecurity. Um, but, you know, like, there are different levels of poverty, yeah. um, for sure. And so we need to meet, you know, the immediate needs of, you know, having people housed that are homeless. But it's not just that. I mean, there are all so many people that are living in, in precarious housing situations, Um uh, you know, primarily, especially in the private sector, where they're, you know, they're paying, you know, ridiculous rents. Uh, they just don't have the income to be able to afford even the rents and the, and the, and the housing that they're, they're living in is, is not uh, properly cared for. So this continues to be a big issue um, that really could be resolved if there was a greater emphasis on investing in social housing, mm. um, which is housing that, you know, rent is, is uh, geared towards income. Yeah. Uh, and that there is, uh, you know, investment in maintaining that housing. This just came to me as you were talking there, and I was just thinking, what what would you say are the benefits that we would see if there was more of that kind of social housing, where there was more subsidies towards that, to be able to have people living in uh, uh, income-balanced housing that would allow people to have more of their income to, say, put food on the table or to maybe uh, to be able to do more things, maybe maybe help put their kids through school or, or, you know, whatever. Um, what would you say we would see as, as the benefits of those to society? Well, I, I think you've, you've, you've essentially said it, David. It, I mean, it provides the basic security that people need, you know, to have a you know, a, a safe place to live mm. and uh, that's affordable. And then that opens up room for you to make other decisions in your life. Um, and it's also the case that if you add to that uh, uh, supports, uh, invest in, in um, you know, supports in, in housing to uh, encourage people to, you know, do other things, builds you know, a sense of community. And there's all sorts of positive things that come from living in a an environment that you feel safe and you build a sense of community and you just think of your own living situation you know i live in a neighborhood on my street i've lived here for a while i know my neighbors um i feel safe and comfortable here and that just eliminates a whole bunch of worries Mm -hmm. for my family right you're listening to element fm in toronto and ottawa this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show is Dr. Shauna McKinnon, and she is the chair and associate professor in the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. She co-authored the article, uh, Federal Budget 2021, More is Needed to Break the Poverty Cycle in the Conversation with Ian Hudson. And uh, he's with the University of Manitoba. And we're talking to uh, Dr. McKinnon about the article. And minimum wage is another thing that you you also bring up in in the article and how do you see that as as something that would help well increasing the minimum wage is also a critical um so there is an a, an announcement with the federal budget around um in you know having a the increasing the federal minimum wage but um you know that that is really um not going to address the minimum wage that's in provincial jurisdiction you know for people who are working in precarious jobs so that's again great that 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 initiative but that's not going to um you know most people are not going to benefit from that but certainly increasing minimum wage having some uh you know in in all jurisdictions is is important because again it just gives people more income it gives them more security so again 
that is one thing, but you also have to do uh, things like ensure that there's affordable, safe housing for people and then address all the other issues that people have in terms of, you know, access to childcare, access to education. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's important, but it can't, in an, that in and of itself will not solve the problem right because it's also the case that there are people who do not work for income that also need to have sufficient income right now you mentioned the budget has a plan for about 35,000 affordable homes and mm-hmm. yet in 2018 about 1.6 million households and not necessarily individual homes were, were required is that across the nation Yes, that's the, the, the stats from the mm-hmm. Canada Morgan Housing Corporation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, yes, I mean, again, there's been some movement around affordable housing. And again, have to be careful when using the term affordable, because often that's, again, depends on how you define affordable housing. Mm-hmm. But it often means median market rents. So, uh, you know, a median market rent, I'm not sure what it is uh, where you're at, um, but um that's often, you know, not affordable for people in really low income. So when we talk about uh, needing to increase the supply of housing, we focus on social housing because that is housing that would be rents that are geared towards an income. So say 30% of someone's income that would be set at. Right, right. You know, I found this really interesting uh, about the poverty is exhausting. And and that makes me think that, and I think I've heard this before, it's it's a full-time job. To be poor, mm-hmm. it's a full-time job. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think about, again, some of my students who, who live in poverty and just how challenging it is for them uh, to just, you know, get to their courses, all the things that they have to do, you know, if they've got children and, you know, again, if they're dealing with, you know, systems such as social assistance, which have all sorts of hoops that they have right. to jump through, um, you know, if they're dealing with housing issues, if you, you know, you know you've got a couple of kids, you don't have a vehicle, you got to get them or you don't have access to, you know, you know, uh, public transportation, even, you know, you've got to get them to childcare or you've got to, you don't have a washing machine. You've got to get to the, you know, haul your kids down to the laundromat. There's so, there are so many obstacles for people, um, which is why one of the women, uh, you know, that I, um, in the inner city described it as, you know, it really, it takes all day to be poor. You're just constantly Mm -hmm. struggling uh, just to keep up. Because it says, it points out that taking things for granted, just as you pointed out, some of those things, which takes time away from your ability to focus, takes time away for you to have time to be able to work. And as it's pointed out in this this one sentence, that they you don't have a place, a proper place that is big enough to have some privacy so that you can focus on your, your required schoolwork or whatever it is that you're trying to do if you're trying to improve your education. And, and not having self-esteem. Which I think is really vital as well, right? Not having that self-esteem to say that I deserve better or I deserve more and not feeling that it's deserved. Yeah, absolutely. And that is definitely a a theme that we have seen over the years. Um, uh, I... uh, I did a, an, an interview with a, 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 an individual years ago. Uh, we, it was called, we called it Joe's story. And he talked about that. Uh, this was an indiv- individual who ha- suffered from um, bipolar disorder, mm-hmm. had difficulty finding housing and was, was heavily reliant on soup kitchens. And so he talked about, you know, 
never having a choice, having no choices in, in his life. He basically had to rely on the goodwill of others. And he talked about, you know, how that affected his sense of self um, because, you know, he felt that, you know, he was just not worthy of being able to make decisions for himself. And, you know, so this is the problem with this model that we've become so reliant on in our country, um, your charitable model, you know, rel- heavy reliance on food banks, heavy reliance on soup kitchens. We need these things uh, because people need to survive, but, but they're not, they're, they're not um, beneficial for people's sense of themselves um, because people want to participate more fully in life. Uh, they don't want to have to line up, you know, to get food given to them. They mm-hmm. want to be able to go to the grocery store like you or I and be able to make choices in the grocery store because they have enough money to, you know, to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, we, we treat people who are living in poverty very badly. And so why should we be surprised when it takes a toll on their, their, their self-esteem? Yes, yes, quite true. We talked a little bit about this, but education is a, a potential way for people to break the, the poverty uh, cycle. But that, that is also very hard to do. Yeah, so uh, I work at a university and we, in the department that I work on, we're very much focused on trying to make university more accessible for students who've, uh, you know, you know, dropped out of high school and are coming back as adults. But, you know, they're behind, right? They're far Mm. behind. And so we need to do more to help them catch up. Mm. Because once they catch up, they're no different than anybody else. But, you know, we, you know, they're at a disadvantage because they're coming in, perhaps, you know, they don't have as strong writing skills or, you know, you know, you know, other the other essential skills that you need to be successful in post-secondary education. Um, and we also need to recognize that the transition is different. So if you're a person, for example, and this is not uncommon, who's, you know, left high school um, as a, you know, you know, and then came back and now you've got a couple kids and you're wanting to, you know, pursue, uh, you know, post-secondary education it's an environment that you're just not familiar with and you may not have known anybody has gone to university, you know, going into a big institution, even finding a library could be completely intimidating. So all of these issues that we, again, middle-class folks take for granted um, are, 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 you know, they're, they're challenges that are amplified for people when they, when they come from poverty. So, you know, again, having the supports in place so that people can get over those first, uh, uh, get through those first hoops, um, you know, then they're, they're, you know, no different than the rest of us, but we need to recognize those barriers. Yeah. And I suppose that there's ongoing, um, concerns for people one, even if they are able to break through that and able to get back to school and, and find their way in and, and get in there, they still have those ongoing issues that you were talking about earlier about the worthiness and about feeling like they deserve it, that they still have to battle, I guess, mentally as well. Absolutely. Like even envision what it's like in the classroom. So if you're a person who comes from, you know, lived in poverty, you you're, you have not, you know, people aren't highly educated in your, your family. Um, you know, you, you know, you come to university and there are all these young, confident, you know, middle class students speaking in class and you just, it, it's very intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you know, these are just all things that we just take for granted as middle class folks. Um, right. Um, yeah, and then again, what, you know, the result is is, is it it can fur- further marginalizes people in those systems and and makes it an uncomfortable um, 
an uncomfortable place. And, you know, there's, there's a comment by an Indigenous person who says that, that starting to survive is is one of the things they have to deal with at an early age. Um, in fact, I was really surprised that between the ages of 8 and 10, um, starting to survive and not being able to, to focus on on the other things, put energies into other things and focus on other things. Yeah, I mean that's a that that particular individual is a and is was somebody lives in the inner city of Winnipeg and you know grew up you know in a very challenging uh, situation, um, and you know and so that you know is the reality for some people that you know they are you mm-hmm. know sur- you know trying to survive um, in you know complicated family situations yeah. um, again so that puts them further behind so their you know their struggle just becomes. Um, you know, far more difficult. Yeah. Also the case for kids that are aging out of care, uh, which is, you know, common in, in, in the inner city as well. You know, far too many Indigenous kids, you know, being still going into the child welfare system. And then, um, you know, they, you know, they're essentially out on their own when they're 17 or 18 with mm. no supports. Mm. How do we expect those kids to, to be successful in post-secondary education? Right. A comment from another individual that said, imagine, uh, they imagine people sitting around uh, a middle class family sitting around the table talking about education and careers and making those kind of decisions around the dinner table. And, and says, not for us, you know, we didn't even have a dinner table. Well, that's, that's a good point to mention to make. But the other thing that is interesting in that comment is, is about the support, the family support as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this, again, is another common theme. Um, So if you grew up in a family where, you know, your parents were, you know, both university educated, you know, these are the things that we talk about when we're young, what you're going to do when you grow up, you know, looking at, you know, different, you know, possibilities Um, for 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 people who who don't come from that experience those possibilities seem like possibilities for other people, not for them. And so they have a very more, you know, much more narrow idea of, of what the possibilities are for them. Right. Well, it's been fascinating speaking with you. Do you feel encouraged about the future at all? (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you always have to be encouraged. Otherwise you, Mm. you know, it's difficult to go on. And so we've seen a few positive things more recently, um, um, but, you know, I think uh, that what, where the positives, the positives for me come more from uh, the community level, um, mm. looking at people organizing, um, pushing for more, mm. um, people who are living in poverty, mobilizing mm. um, and, and being, you know, not not accepting it anymore. Right. Uh, so we need to do more of that. And I think um, I think that's where we're going to see a change happen. All right, Dr. McKinnon, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about your article that you co-authored in the conversation, Federal Budget 2021, More is Needed to Break the Poverty Cycle, so people can go to the conversation and read up on that. All the best with the the great work that you're doing and wish you all the best in the future and continued uh, fortune with the work that you're doing in this area. Great. Thanks for having me, David. All right. You take care. 
Bye-bye. Bye. That's Dr. McKinnon. She's an associate professor and chair at the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. That uh, article in the conversation co-authored with Dr. Uh, rather Ian Hudson, and he's a professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Manitoba. And as it says in the article, they are part of the Manitoba Research Alliance. That's this part of the program. Thanks for listening. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more right after this short break. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and also on the iHeartRadio app if you download the app and take us with you anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Yvonne Sue, and she is an assistant professor in interdisciplinary refugee and dysphoria studies in the Department of, Equ- of Equality Studies, and, or rather Equity Studies, and the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University. And she's here to talk about an author, an article she authored in The Conversation, which is entitled, With COVID-19's Third Wave, We're Far From All In This Together. So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Yvonne Su to the show. Thanks for having me on, David. It's our pleasure to have you here. And thank you for the article. And uh, we're going to jump into this. And of course, you know, your article starts with the line one year ago. And how long ago that one year does seem to be. <laughs> really? And and the picture is a picture of Premier Ford in a shirt that says we're all in this together mm-hmm. in his video making uh, cherry cheesecake. Yeah. And I think uh, we can all say that that photo in that video did not age well. <laughs> The cheesecake didn't look too bad, though. <laughs> it did not look too bad, actually. Yeah, he got that one right. <laughs> yeah. um, so your article is pointing out about that inequity. I guess that's what we're, you're talking about is the, the inequity that, that we're seeing and showing up over the last year and about the, the shortcomings that have happened uh, as we're now into this third wave. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, people are very upset at how unequal vaccine access has been, how it acts, uh, vaccine distribution has been, and how um, the provincial government, the premier, does not seem to be listening to his advisors, the science table, uh, or anybody, really. It does not seem like he's consulting much with those who are on the ground and being affected. You know, it's very confusing this whole last year, as you say, from COVID-19. There's been questions around the vaccines themselves. There's questions about the rollout. There's questions about shortages. Uh, You know, there's questions around the variants. And there's lots and lots of questions in so many different areas. So it's Mm -hmm. been very confusing for all of us as we get through this. I'm sure, you know, in fairness, it's, it's, you know, it hasn't been any less for politicians. But having said that, they are the people that uh, we look to to try and make sure that uh, this is taken care of in the best possible way for us. This short-lived solidarity that you're referring to, do you want to elaborate on that? Yes, of course. So I think um, all of us can remember uh, a year ago, a bit more than a year ago, when we first learned about a coronavirus, we were all very scared. And it's very normal to come together um, as humans and uh, as groups mm-hmm. to feel strong uh, in the face of a crisis. So what we saw was a lot of people uh, organizing online uh, and through little um, community pods to help those who are more vulnerable. So that those are examples of care mongering, um, giving groceries, getting groceries for seniors, mm. uh, telling people where to get masks or sharing sanitizer mm-hmm. uh, and those kind of resources. 
those were and helping each other get um, assistance in general. So the, that was those were examples of care mongering. And I would say it was quite short lived, about uh, three to four months, I would think. Um, and so things started to fizzle out. An example of that is when people used to um, clap for carers or go out mm, and uh, yeah. um, hit their pans yeah, at 7 p.m. Yeah, right. right. You know, we, we that lasted for a few months, but yeah. it wasn't well sustained. No, it wasn't. And that's because this COVID situation has sustained and it's gone on and on and, and man and, and changed throughout that time. As we saw mm-hmm. uh, through the summer, it kind of cooled down a little bit and it looked like things were loosening up and we were, you know, people were going outside and enjoying themselves and things started to open up a little bit. And then, of course, we get the second wave and, uh, and that all changed again. Um, mm-hmm. We see more and more of a focus on those essential workers and those hotspots where people uh, continue to now uh, look like in this third wave of, of things that uh, that are the people that that are also the most vulnerable for being exposed to these viruses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I think people are frustrated because. Um, uh, public policy, you know, the announcements that were made uh, of, of last Friday or a week ago about essential workplaces being open, but essential workers not being vaccinated and they're not being uh, paid sick leave for essential workers. I think people are upset because if they're essential enough to work, they should be essential enough to get vaccinated and they should be essential enough to get paid sick leave. Mm, right. Now, something you point out under that short-lived solidarity heading is the the idea that uh, some scholars observe that social inequity and social divisions often reemerge after a crisis. Yeah, I think that we like to feel that perhaps some people thought maybe COVID even the playing field. You know, like mm. something like a pandemic like this, bringing community together, bringing families together. Maybe there are there's going to be some good that comes out of it. But I think what we um, kind of overlook is that so, social inequalities are very hardened, right? They're, they're, you, you can't really change your race or your class or your income significantly. And there are divides along those lines. And those divides, while they might disappear when uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, when we were all faced with the same thing and all very scared, um, they reemerge often because mm. it's just hard to make those things go away. Right. Now, uh, in your article, you also point out that uh, some are blaming Ontario governments for poor public health policies and doctors are uh, some doctors are calling for uh, a, a, this preventable humanitarian catastrophe. You yeah, want, yeah, I think that um, doctors, healthcare workers are very upset and very angry at the government because there were so many projections. There were so many um, studies and evidence that pointed to the third wave coming. And there were um, advice and things that we could have do to could have done to prevent the third wave, and the government didn't listen to that. And I think that's very frustrating because these are you know these doctors and healthcare workers they're at the front lines of this. They're seeing people die every single day. Mm. Uh, a thirteen year old teenage girl died. Yeah, that's uh, right. Recently, that's Emily, right. Uh, Viegas, um, and that was really unfortunate. And a baby died in BC. Mm. You know, these are lives. These are lives, and there's lots of people that are dying as a result of public policy. I would say. Mm. Um, so that policy and this, as you point out, is a politically produced precarity. Um, want to elaborate? Yes. Yeah, so um, this is kind of what I'm saying. So politically produced precarity is um, precarity, vulnerability, uncertainty that is caused by policy. So I think in the beginning of the pandemic, we are all very scared and certain that, you know, the pandemic is what is dangerous. And of course, it's dangerous. But by a year now, uh, with so much knowledge, we are aware of how to contain the virus, how to stop its spread and how to stop a third wave. 
So it's not necessarily the virus that we're scared of or that's harming us. It's technically the government and their poor governance that is causing people to be put in harm's way. Uh, I think when you look at essential workers who are forced to work so they can, um, you know, pay their bills, pay their rent. um, If they're feeling sick, they don't want to take lose a whole day's wage. Right. Mm -hmm. They're probably going to go to work anyways, because that's a lot of money to lose. Um, But without paid sick leave, you know, there's there's no avenue. There's no structure for them to be able to safely take a day off if they feel sick or to even get a take take a day off to get tested or to take a day off to get vaccinated. There, there aren't these protections for them. Right. Um, and this is what's making them precarious. Public policy is making them precarious. They're forced to work. Central workplaces are open. Central workers are working. But they're not prioritized for vaccines and they're not prioritized uh, in policy regarding paid sick leave. Yeah. What, what, what's going on, if you know, about the, the idea of these mobile units going out to these, these essential worker areas? Is that, do you know anything about that? So people are very frustrated because you see all these videos of huge lineups, like thousands of people are lining up. And um, the reason for that is that there isn't much publication or publicity regarding where these mobile units are. Mm. And one of the reasons I think the government cited for not publishing them and, you know, giving advance notice is because they were scared that they're going to get swarmed. But I think it's kind of like a weird kind of thinking. Right. If people can't plan and if people are being told that they're not going to know when these things pop up. Yes. Right. They are going to swarm when there is a chance because, of course, they want to get vaccinated. These are mainly essential workers. So I think that the government could have done a much better job with community consultation because there are lots of organizations in these communities who know their community well, who knows what works um, and can make sure that the vaccination access and the vaccination plan and the marketing is going to be effective. But now people are mainly turning to Twitter, right? I'm sure you've heard of the vaccine hunters. Mm. That is where most Ontarians or Canadians are going to get to find out where they can get vaccinated and where their vaccines available. And I don't think I mean, it's great that they exist and people have said they deserve an order of Canada. I agree. But it's really sad that these private citizens are the ones Mm. that are giving and leading vaccine access. Yeah. Uh, as opposed yeah. to the provincial government itself. Right. Now, you, you mentioned the uh, very unfortunate death of the 13-year-old recently in, in Brampton. And uh, that, of course, triggered other conversations uh, because around the same time, there was the vote on this, um, this, this member's bill that came forward about paid sick leave that didn't pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, they voted it down, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Premier Ford and the Conservative MPPs, they voted it down. And I think uh, maybe because they want to introduce their own bill. But I think for people who are trying to follow the news and try to figure out what's happening, this is extremely disheartening. Yeah, um, and it's, it's a lot of mixed messages. It is. And I think that's the definition of the vaccine rollout. Just mixed messages. <laughs> it's so hard for people to keep up. And also, not everybody has Twitter. Not everybody is able to have the time to do extensive research online to figure out how they're eligible. Uh, and then phoning pharmacies is another disaster, right? You know, I phoned many and um, there's nobody that picks up, right? So I can imagine people are just so frustrated. They feel like there's no access, no route for them to go to even get the proper information. And I, I think this, all of this could have been avoided, I think people could have predicted that the vaccine rollout was going to be very complicated. And we've seen other provinces, I think Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, um, have one system, just one central system for booking, and it's supposed to be very effective. And it was designed by an Ontario company, which is, makes it very awkward for us, because in Ontario, there's so many ways to book a vaccine, and all the information is very different. 
Now, the other thing you, you have in your article is, of course, this graph that shows the outbreak numbers and, and areas. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, again, all of this is a very it's, um, kind of awkward and, and ironic because all of this data is provided by the provincial government. So on the provincial government's COVID website, they provide a breakdown in charts and graphs and data of um, the number of outbreaks in various locations. So there's um, education, there is workplaces, uh, other, there's also like travel. Uh, I know there's a lot of conversation about travel being a source of um, mm-hmm. uh, outbreaks, but however, the data is not showing that. The data shows that travel is actually very low. It's education that's actually the number one place for outbreaks. And of course, um, schools have been shut. Uh, and then workplaces is the second uh, most popular place for outbreaks. Yeah. So the fact that about 30% of outbreaks are from workplaces and they're still open is what is very frustrating. I know there are new uh, policies in uh, different places that are saying that if you have like five or 10 um, COVID outbreaks, you have to close. And I think that is a great policy. But the question was, why was that policy not put in earlier? Right? Why did we have to wait for a third wave, wait for variants that we already knew about that were much more infectious to be in our communities, um, making people sick and killing people to put in a policy like that, which is very simple. Right. Mm-hmm. And we could have done it much earlier. Yeah. OK. So now you also point out about a, a couple of other things. You make some references in your uh, article about uh, a couple of people. And, and one specific is Andrew Dew and, and his situation with his parents uh, living in the Jane Finch area. Yeah, Andrew Dew, Dew, he's a friend of mine, and um, his story was very sad because he had successfully booked vaccines um, appointments for his for his parents, and two days before they were supposed to get vaccinated, they got COVID, mm. and he was he was scared. He was scared for their lives. He thought mm-hmm. they were going to pass away. His dad mm-hmm. is a factory worker, yep. uh, and that's where he believes he got exposed. Uh, so I think stories like that really bring to light um, how vulnerable uh, these groups are. You know, they should have been prioritized earlier. You know, they shouldn't have had to wait to get their vaccines. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And of course, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. Take us with you anywhere you go. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And my guest here on the show is Dr. Yvonne Sue. She's an assistant professor in interdisciplinary refugee and dysphoria studies in the Department of Equity Studies in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University. Talking to her about an article she authored in the conversation link titled with COVID-19's third wave, we're far from all in this together. Uh, making reference to the the t-shirt that uh, Doug Ford was wearing about a year ago when he was uh, going on camera making cheesecake and uh, talking about how we were all in this together. And uh, so we're talking about this article with uh, Dr. Soup and we're just going through the article and talking about some of the things. Inequity is something of course that she is referring to that it's is spelled out in here and about some of those things and and dr sue one of the th- other thing that you re- refer to is the vaccines and how that is showing up as inequitable as well throughout this uh this this and specifically in the toronto area and those hot spots that were were shown to uh, be selected for uh, who should get the vaccines yeah, so I think um, there was a lot of outrage when it was um, uncovered that the post, some of the postal codes that were included as hotspots actually had lower than average infection rates. 
So about five postal codes didn't have, had lower than um, provincial average infection rates, but they were included um, as hotspots. And when you, when, you know, I think the star revealed this, when they dug a bit deeper, um, it was revealed that um, those hotspots belonged to people to were represented by conservative MPPs. Mm. And then there were eight hotspots or eight places that had above um, provincial average infection rates that were not included in this hotspot list. And those were represented by opposition MPPs. Right. So when you see stuff like that, it's really difficult not to feel disheartened that politics is at play Mm. in determining um, who is left, who is included and who is excluded. Right. Now, you specifically point out the Jane Finch and the Moore Park uh, area, but you also point out about the poorest neighborhoods and and these other neighborhoods with the vaccination rate. Now, when you say vaccination rate, are you talking about just those people that are showing up to get vaccinated? I mean, those people who have have been vaccinated. Okay. so so when I wrote this article about a week ago, Mm. um, before some of the recent um, mobile units were Mm. in uh, Jane and Finch, the vaccination rate was five percent. Yes. In Moore Park, one of the most affluent areas, um, it was 22 percent. Now, you can look at the differences and say, you know, it could be a breakdown of age because people in Moore Park, they're more affluent and, and mm. many of them are older mm. in that area. Right. So they, that's why they were eligible to get the vaccine and that's why the vaccination rate was so high. But you can also say that those are the same people that um, can stay at home. Right. right. If they're right. retired or stay at yep. home because they have jobs that allow them to work from home. Yep. So their risk is actually lower than when you compare it to Jane and Finch, who are mostly younger population and mostly uh, racialized communities that are in essential workplaces. The other right? thing, yes. So while they're younger and they might be, quote unquote, less exposed just because of their age, um, the fact that they're, you know, working at our Tim Hortons, working at our Costco, you know, bagging groceries, meeting people every mm-hmm. single day, being mm-hmm. exposed, you know, they are much more vulnerable than those who have money and are pretty comfortable inside their houses in Moore Park. Right. The other thing that comes to mind, and, and I'm not sure if I'm reading into this in the right way, but uh, I think about the just the question around hesitancy, you know, and vaccine hesitancy. Is there is there questions, uh, you know, for the... That's one hesitancy. The other thing is, like you were saying, is the uh, the availability to uh, get to, to the pharmacies or get to the areas where they could or even access the mobile uh, uh, vaccinations so that uh, because of time, you know, as you say, the, were they able to get either time off and or are those uh, units available during the times that they are? Absolutely. And I think it is anybody that's tried to book a COVID test will know that it doesn't cater to your schedule. Hmm. Right. So when you try to book a COVID test, you know, it's not going to be available right away or tomorrow. It could be in three days. It could be in four days. And in those times, you might be working. So if you're, you know, on the fence about whether you have it and you're thinking about taking uh, losing a whole day's wage to get a test, you're likely not going to go get a test. Hmm. So I think um, what you're saying about uh, schedules and timelines and things not matching up is definitely a concern. And, and, and that's why I go back to the need to consult with local organizations. They need to consult with people on the ground, right? They might be able to tell you, you know what, um, uh, these pop-ups are great, but they definitely have to be on the weekends or they definitely have to be in the evenings because that's when most people are available. Right. right. You know, like these are very simple things that we can um, get an understanding from by simply talking to stakeholders, talking to the people on the ground. Right. And I think one thing that really shocked me 
and showed me the lack of consultation by the provincial government or by Premier Ford's government um, is when it came down to the, the carding rule, right, about the police force right. having more power to pull people over yeah. and to stop them and the, uh, stop pedestrians to ask them where they're going and to ask for their address. I was shocked because, of course, this is a very sweeping power, but I was yeah. more shocked by when police forces in Peel and Ottawa and Kingston and Toronto were themselves saying, no, we will not do this. Right. So what that showed me is that um, on such a significant policy, the pre- Premier Ford and his government did not consult the individual police forces mm. to say, is this a good idea? Right. How do we do this? Right. How do we leverage the police force to um, limit mobility? Right. They might have come up with different ways um, to do it, or they might have come up and just said, you know what? Don't risk it. Mm. You know, carding has been highly associated with racial profiling. We're only going to make people essential workers Unfortunately, who are often racialized, right? We're only going to make essential workers nervous to go to work and fearful. So, you know, that was something that was really simple to, to have a conference call, right? To have a conference call, get the police forces on the same line and, and, and figure out uh, what could happen. But it, it seems like that's not what happened. That's something so simple did not take place. Well, and, and the fact is that, of course, the police forces did come forward and say they weren't going to do that. And then, of course, uh, Ford backtracked and he came forward to say, you know, I mean, a mistake. But um, it, it was Why interesting. Do you think that was so unnecessary, right? Yes. Yeah. Because now you've got, it went a whole day with everyone being really scared. Like even myself talking mm. to my husband being like, okay, well, what documents are we going to have on us mm. that are going to show her address? Right. Right. And, I, and on Twitter, people were saying, go please, go ask your employer for, for uh, a letter saying you work there. On top right. of that, print out your schedule. Right. You know, these are all these additional steps that people are now, and when that was announced, people were fearful. And these were things that they felt that they needed to do. Um, and I think those were just unnecessary motions for people to go through in a global pandemic mm. when the premier could have had a conference call with the police forces who would have adamantly said no. Right. And we wouldn't even have be having this discussion. Right. Good point. Um, going back <laughs> to the point about the, the partisan considerations for the postal codes and the hotspots. Um, have you heard any further uh, fallout from that in terms of what the progressive conservatives are saying um, in regard to that, that those comments? I don't, I don't even think they responded. Mm. I don't recall seeing a response. Mm. And I think that's smart, right? Because what can they say? Right. <laughs> they don't, they, I don't think they really have anything to justify why they were included. Because uh, if the criteria was um, whether the place was, had a high infection rate or above provincial average infection rate, that seems like a pretty clear cut criteria, mm. right? Mm. So how did, also, how do you make exception for five? You know, if like one or two slip through the cracks, some kind of, Oversight, maybe, but when there's more, that's when you kind of uh, question it. And of course, when they're all represented by conservative MPPs, you're like, okay. Right. Right. Yes, it is questionable for sure. Absolutely. Now, the other thing you mentioned in here is that young frontline workers begging pharmacists for vaccines. Yeah, I, I saw a video of a pharmacist in Toronto that was saying that, you know, there are people lining up, there are people asking him to be vaccinated, but they just don't qualify, even though they can prove their vulnerability. Um, they don't qualify and to vaccinate them would be to break the law. So you've got pharmacists who are in such a tough position, refusing people who are begging them, crying, and also um, throwing out expired vaccines or having to threat the threat of having to throw out expired vaccines. We've seen tweets from pharmacists saying like, uh, and tweets to the vaccine hunters saying, you know, I've got um, this many doses that are going to expire at the end of the day. Please help me get people in here. Mm. You know, Mm. so I think that, that that's another mismatch of, of public policy. 
Now, when you say that uh, they show their vulnerability, but they're not they're they're not eligible. What do you mean by that? So um, going back to what you were saying with the 18 year old um, plus 18 plus for the hotspots. Mm. Right. That's that's only the hotspots and that's only um, in the mobile units that they know. Right. But again, we don't know where these mobile units are and they're not necessarily announced ahead of time. So you've got people who are 18 plus who are essential workers who qualify for the hots for the mobile units, but they don't qualify in the pharmacy and they don't qualify through the provincial booking system. Right. So again, this is all very confusing. Yeah. Right. You're yeah. reading many headlines being like 18 plus in hotspots, uh, you know, eligible. So you get super excited. And then when you read the fine print and you read the details, you find out how difficult it is. Or most people, they don't have time to read the details. So they're assuming, okay, I'm going to go to a pharmacy, a pharmacy, right? And try to get a vaccine. Mm. Uh, hence the, the pharmacist having to decline them. Yeah. Or when you go on the Ontario website, you're clicking through and it just keeps denying you, mm. right? Even though the news um, or Doug Ford has said to your face that, you're eligible, right? Mm-hmm. You're not finding avenues to actually get the vaccine. Mm. And, and that's just very disheartening. The other comment that stands out in your article is the one about the, uh, uh, I think it's a doctor that says your job is essential, but you're not. Yeah, I like that. That really hit, mm. that hit hard because I think it resonates with people, right? right. Like Amazon warehouses are open, mm. Right. Mm. Like factories, farms, these big places of exposure are open and they don't have a choice there because, you know, if they, if they quit, they don't get CRB. Mm. Right. Because they've, they've quit. They haven't been let go. Right. Right. So there aren't any avenues for them to protect themselves and feel safe while still making money in a global pandemic where everybody is very fearful of their financial situation. Right. I mean, their expenses have not gone down. Right. Yeah. Rent really hasn't gone down. No. Um, your, your phone bill. Hasn't gone down, right? The cost of water. All these things are still the same, yet your sources of uh, livelihood are at risk. Yeah. So ending politically produced precarity and uh, looking forward, uh, as you say, some people are looking towards the next uh, the next election. Uh, Add one more thing to the list that we need to be thinking about. Yeah, I think. I, if, you, if you can say it's a silver lining of uh, the, this pandemic and uh, the government's reaction to the third wave is that it's gotten a lot of people to play, pay closer attention to public policy and pay closer attention to the consequences of their elections. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to remember that when we elect somebody, we often elect them for four years. Mm-hmm. That means that we can't just kick them out or say, no, I don't like them anymore. Halfway through. Right. So if you vote for somebody that um, has promised you a bunch of things and they don't deliver, then you can vote them out in the next election. But hopefully you learn the lesson to be much more careful, to really vet um, the candidates and to understand that there are real life consequences to these elections and Mm -hmm. to who is in power. They govern us and uh, they decide who gets to live and who gets to die. And I think that's something we don't often talk enough about Mm -hmm. um, when we talk talk about our politics. Uh, Dr. Sue, any last things in terms of that may have developed since you wrote this article that we haven't talked about uh, looking forward or that you want to mention just before we finish up? Um, I think that the main thing is that I am seeing a lot of advocacy, Hmm. mainly on Twitter, but still, you know, people are calling Premier's office, people are sending messages, they're calling their MPPs. So I am hopeful that there's a lot of civic engagement that has resulted Hmm. from um, these poor policies, um, which hopefully will bring us more um, engagement in the future. 
Right. Okay, Dr. Sue, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about your article and things that it has pointed out. Um, and and uh, we hope to perhaps have you back on the show in the future to talk about uh, future issues. Thank you so much, David. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you. Thank you. That's uh, Dr. Yvonne Sue. She's an assistant professor in interdisciplinary refugee and dysphoria studies in the Department of Equity Studies in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies at York University. We were talking to her about her article that she authored in the conversation entitled With COVID-19's Third Wave, We Are Far From All In This Together. And that is our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth each and every day right here on Element FM. And we'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.